Well, we're going to begin a new series today, uh, as is our custom of going through the Word of God verse by verse. Uh, today we're going to begin an introduction into the epistle to the Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles out, we're going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, but because today is an introduction, we're going to go through a little bit of background and a little bit of what the basic context is. I think today we'll probably end up looking at verses 1 to 3, 1 to 3. But I want to share a, a story with you. This is a true story. Um, and I want to share it because I think it brings out a good point in terms of what Ephesians is all about. I personally, I personally know of a person who recently lost his wife. And she died unexpectedly. Um, they never had children. Um, and before the death of his wife, this person was unable to work uh, because of a botched surgery that took place in them. They had a, uh, he was on a low disability. And so that was his only income. He was less than 65, so his total income was the disability check he was receiving. And they both lived in a, a um, kind of walk-up apartment, you know, ground-level walk-up apartment that they had there. But upon his wife's death, her job contacted him. And they were contacting him regarding her death benefits. And much to his shock, his wife had left him over $2 million in one of the premier stocks in Wall Street. One of the premier stocks in Wall Street. So it's one of the best performing stock, and there was $2 million of equity already in there at the time. She also left him three quarters of a million dollars in her 401k. And then she left him several thousand, hundreds of thousands of dollars in other stocks that were there. And so overnight, this person went from a disability check to a net worth of about three and a half to four million dollars overnight. And while he was married to his wife, he never knew of the fortune that she had amassed. And he didn't know that he was a millionaire and didn't know it. Now, this is a true story. I know this person, right? What does this have to do with Ephesians? This is like many Christians, many Christians today. And in this this masterful work of the Apostle Paul on the, on the epistle of Ephesians, Paul writes the church in Ephesus, a church that was in a pagan city, a church that was holding to the purity of the gospel, and he writes to encourage them of the immeasurable riches that are, uh, that are the believers in Jesus Christ. These are immeasurable riches. In Jesus Christ. The practical truth of this epistle is that the believer in Christ has more wealth and riches than the wealthiest person in the entire world. 
And all across the pages of Ephesians, we read statements like this. The riches of God's grace, found in verse 1, uh, found in chapter 1, verse 7. The unfathomable riches of Christ, found in chapter 3, verse 8. The riches of His glory, found in 3.16. In the, as a matter of fact, in this letter, in this letter, Paul uses the word riches five times, grace 14 times, glory eight times, fullness fills or filled six times, and of course the critical term that we're going to see throughout this is in Christ, in Christ. And he uses that term 15 times throughout the epistle of the Ephesians. Paul tells the Ephesians that our riches in Christ are based on Christ's grace, His peace, His will, His kind intention, His purpose, His glory, His calling, His inheritance, His power, His love, His workmanship, His spirit, His gifts, His sacrifices, His strength, and His armor. You're starting to see something there, right? It's all His. It's all His. All of the things that are given to believers, they're all His. In Ephesians, we learn of the mystery of the church, the body of Christ, composed both of Jews and Gentiles. The church is spoken of as the body of Christ. It's portrayed not as a dead organization, but as a living body. And may I add, that's what we are. We are a living body. The church of Jesus Christ is a living body. It's not an organization. We have no pope. There is not one place where the church is headquartered. We are as much of the church here, right here in Orlando, as the biggest, most elaborate church there may be. God is not a respecter of persons. God is not a respecter of buildings. And God is not a respecter of organizations. Born again, saved, redeemed believers and followers of Christ are actual members of the body of Christ. And this is the great mystery. And the head of this body is the, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Believers submit themselves to Christ as Lord. And to love the church is to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And to disregard the church is to disregard Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians is going to talk about this great mystery of the church. And believers, we're told also, are in Christ, which means we're placed in the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, when the church is faithful... Here's an amazing thing. When the church is faithful, it operates through the spiritual gifts of its members. That's how it operates, through the spiritual gifts of its members. When the church is faithful, Christ comes to full measure. He comes to full measure through the church, and the glory of Christ is found in the church. When the church is unfaithful, 
when its members are unfaithful, when they are more preoccupied with self than they are with Christ, then the church and its function in the world is diminished. Profoundly, may I add, profoundly diminished. The church will grow weak and impotent. And when this happens, it's sad to say, the church looks more like the world than it does like the church. I want to give you a little bit of historical background to this epistle of the Ephesians. First and foremost, it's written about 61 AD. It's written by the Apostle Paul. We're going to see that in verse 1. It's going to be very clear. What was going on at the world at this time? Well, the Roman Empire was at its peak. It was at its zenith. And the Romans believed that their gods gave them the authority and the power to go out into the world and to conquer all of these nations. So Rome was the reigning power. Ephesus, which was in what is today modern-day Turkey, was part of the Roman Empire. And this epistle was written from a Roman prison as Paul was under arrest. Ephesus itself was an extremely wicked city. Extremely wicked. In Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, the goddess of love. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world back then. And as part of the temple worship, there were temple prostitutes. And the temple, by the way, temple prostitutes, both male and female. And at night, they would descend upon the city. And they believed by offering their body and commit, committing acts of fornication and other sexual acts, they believed that they were worshiping the goddess of love, Artemis. And this was the pervasive, pervasive religion. Marry that with the other pagan religions at the time. Marry that with all of the other pantheon of Roman gods and Greek gods. So it was a paganistic society. Now, the Apostle Paul planted the church in Ephesus. And as I think I've mentioned to you times before in the past, they had an all-star list of pastors. It started with the Apostle Paul it went to Timothy, it went to Apollos, it went over to the Apostle John. I mean, come on, man, you can't get better than that, right? But yet, when the church was planted, revival came. Revival came. Listen to the Word of God. In Acts chapter 19, verse 18, it says this, many also, of, this is speaking of Ephesus, many of those who had believed, kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. What happened? Paul preached the gospel, and people were getting saved. They were getting saved out of the pagan culture. And they were coming to Christ. But with revival came retaliation. Right? With revival came retaliation. And there arose a silversmith 
who got all the other craftsmen together and said, this guy Paul's going to put us out of business. These people are converting to Christ. They're not going to want our little statues and our fake gods. So they, they aroused the crowd. And they said, hey, this Paul is, is taking us away from the true worship of our goddess. And a riot broke out. And the Apostle Paul was arrested there. But yet the church would continue to still move forward. And there remained a small contingent of believers who did not waver in unbelief but held true to the one true gospel. And so Paul sends this letter from a Roman prison because there had been some that were coming in calling themselves apostles when they were not apostles. Coming in specifically in 1 Timothy, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander, those who were going to come in and were teaching false doctrine and were leading them astray. And Paul writes this letter to number one, tell them of the immeasurable riches that they have in Christ. The purpose is understand who you are and what has been accomplished and what Christ has provided to the believer. That's the purpose. So the first three chapters of Ephesians is doctrine. It's doctrine. What is doctrine, by the way? It's got a bad rap today. Oh, I don't want doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is truth. Doctrine is truth, right? It is how. Who is God the Father? Who is Christ the Son? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church? What does it mean to be saved? This is all truth. And if we didn't have doctrine, which is why we spend so much time verse by verse by verse teaching the Word of God so that you would know what the author was saying there, right? So doctrine is truth. So in every one of Paul's epistles, what you will see is the beginning is all doctrinal. And the second half is all application and personal greeting. And Ephesians just follows the very same style as well. Paul concludes this epistle in chapter 6 reminding believers of the strength of God and His Holy Spirit. And His final encouragement for the believers in Christ is what? Stand firm. Isn't that something? I didn't make that up. It says it right there in the Word of God. To stand, to stand firm in the faith because God provides power and God provides grace. Now there's one other footnote to Ephesians. If you're a student of the Bible, you'll know in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ writes letters to the seven churches of Asia. One of those churches, the first church, is the church of Ephesus. And it begins with all these compliments that he gives the church at Ephesus. Hey, we know you're holding firm in the faith. We know you don't accept uh, false teachers and false doctrines. And we know of your hard labor and your work for the things of the Lord. It's all complimentary. Be honest with you. It's all things that I would love the Lord to say one day about this church. Right? But he goes on and he says, but I have this against you. You have lost your first love. 
And he calls the church who's doing what appears on the outside everything right. He calls the church to repent. He says, repent. Come back to your first love. Or else I will remove your candlestick from its place. Can you imagine a church that had Paul, Timothy, Apollos, John, later on Polycarp, a disciple of John, as pastors, and yet they had lost their first love. Let me tell you something. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we must not only love the Lord, we must know the Lord, but our knowledge of the Lord leads to a love for the Lord. And we can never let that wane. We can never get so accustomed to tradition and formula but not have a deep burning desire in our heart for Jesus Christ. What happened to Ephesus? What the Lord said actually happened. The candlestick was removed. The church did cease to exist. And if you go to modern day Turkey today, you can see the ancient ruins of the church in the city of Ephesus. I think that's a sad commentary. Now the last thing I want to say to you is this. The epistle of Ephesus is rich in doctrine. Rich in doctrine, and it is rich in personal application. Right? As we move through the text, you have to ask yourself, how does this apply to me? When we're in the doctrinal sections, and we're looking at the great doctrines of the Christian faith, you have to ask yourself, how does this apply to me? What bearing does this have in me? Why is it important? Because my goal in this is to present Christ in all of His glory. To present the gospel in all of its glory. Listen, we're being robbed today. We're being conned today. We're being defrauded today by a quick and easy Christianity. One that has no substance. One that has no grounding. One that is telling everybody, well, the only thing that matters is that, you know, that you said a prayer and, and that you're saved. No! Christ has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. We have a rich inheritance. We're here today because 2,000 years ago and onward, People were willing with their blood to lay their life for the advancement of the gospel. For the advancement of the gospel. People only known to God. Yes. We're here today. We have a rich history. Yes, sir. And we have deep and rich blessings in Christ. Yes. And I'll say what I said in Sunday school. In Sunday school we're studying what does it mean to know God. But I'll say this, and I made this statement during Sunday school. If during the course of this, you, you, you get a sense, oh, that's not me. I'm, I'm not that deep. I, I, I don't know this. Therefore, something must be inherently wrong with me. Listen, you can come to the fullness of the knowledge of Christ. You can. If you seek Him, He will allow Himself to be found. If you desire Him, if you thirst for Him, 
He will give you that living water that you'll never thirst again. So there's no room for discouragement. There's only room for encouragement. I want to know Christ more. I want to know Christ deeper. I want to have that intimate relationship with Christ. And this we do through the living and active Word of God, which is why we do what we do. So I'm going to ask you to look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm really going to look at three verses today. It's really introductory. Uh, next week we'll really hit chapter 1 harder. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'll read verses 1 through 3 and then we'll go through the text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Immediately on the outset, Immediately he jumps in. You're going to see that Paul wastes no time with personal greeting. He gives a very, very brief introductory greeting. And there's a twofold meaning here to Paul's letter to the Ephesian and the opening statement. First, the first thing Paul does is he establishes his apostolic authority. He establishes that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does apostle mean? What's the word mean? The word apostle means sent one. He is one sent from God. That's what the word means. And those are those who God uniquely selected. He uniquely selected and he uniquely gifted them to lay the foundation of the early church. Now, there were two main criteria to be an apostle. Two main criteria to be an apostle. Number one, the apostle was to receive their calling directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? They were to receive their calling directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ specifically had to call them. And we know that with the apostle Paul, he did just that on the road to uh, Damascus, where he literally knocked them off his horse and brought them to that place. The second thing, they were to be witnesses to the resurrected Christ. They were to be witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And Paul did witness Christ on the road to Damascus. So he was a witness, he had a conversation. Paul, uh, the Lord Jesus told Cornelius, hey, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Yes. So Paul fit the category of an apostle. But in addition, they were gifted. They were gifted with spiritual gifts. Amen. They were able to heal the, raise the dead. Yes. They were able to heal the sick. They were able to cast out devils. And there was a reason for that. The reason was that just as Jesus 
had power and demonstrated his authority on earth upon Jesus' ascension, he passed that authority to the apostles who were able to go out and do great, great, great signs and wonders in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to preach. They were to teach. They were to pray. They were to plant churches. They were to build up leaders. And they would write, some of them would write the very words of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what an apostle was. Are there modern-day apostles today? No. That's called a pregnant pause. <laughs> no, there aren't apostles today. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8, uh, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says this as he talks about that. He said, Last of all, as it were one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul emphasizes here in Ephesians chapter 1, he's an apostle, how? By the will of God. God had made that determination. And Paul makes it very straightforward to whom he's writing. Who is he writing? To the saints who are in Ephesus. John MacArthur writes this, From God's side, believers are those whom God has made holy, which is the meaning of saints. That's what it means. For a man's side, believers are those who are faithful, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every true believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. When I was a kid growing up in New York City, if somebody wanted to make somebody mad, they'd make a joke about their mother. Right? And it was very common for us to say, don't talk about my mother, that woman's a saint. Right? That woman's a saint. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. There's no canonization that needs to be done. Why? Because we have been set apart, we have been called apart by God Himself unto Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed away. Our sins are washed away. We stand in the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You know, I never, I'm, I'm digressing here for a moment, but I just want to make an important point. I never get bored of that particular fact. You know, I'll speak for me. As I look back on my life, I can see a litany of sins, terrible things that I did. Terrible things. Things I'm not proud of, things I'm ashamed of. Horrible sins. And when I stop and think that when the Lord God Almighty looks at me, He doesn't look at Mark and go, there goes Mark the guy who used to do this, that, and the other thing. As a matter of fact, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that thou hast taken my sin and cast it into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgressions. 
If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, you ready for this? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And then when you think of 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on my behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I speak for me, and I'm sure some of you share the very similar sentiment. I can't get past that. I, I, I can't. That my rap sheet, if you would, before the holy and righteous God is clean. It's clean. You ever hear people when you're sharing the gospel? People say to you, well, if you stood before God and God said, what, why should I let you? You ever hear that one? Why should I let you into heaven? And you know, you hear people try to rationalize it. Oh, you know, I do this, I do that, I do the other thing. And they ask me that. Why should I let you into heaven? I said, he shouldn't. That's just the truth. But he will. And he will not because of any merit of my own. Because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. What does it mean to be saved? What it means to be saved is not that you got your ticket punched that you're not going to hell. Please don't buy that. Not going to hell is a benefit of salvation, but it is not the totality of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? It means that there was a great exchange that was done. There was one who was darkened in sin. A rap sheet as long as the universe of transgressions against God. At enmity with God, warring against God. No, I will not submit. No, you can't make me do this. That's one who's standing here. There's another standing here. Perfect righteousness. Holiness. Purity. Sinlessness. One in nature with the Father. And there's this great exchange that takes place. Yes, sir. And the exchange is this. That rap sheet. Those violations. Those transgressions. Yes, that enmity against a holy and righteous God. The punishment for that. Is put upon the innocent. And the righteousness, the holiness, the justice, the glory, the sinlessness, the perfection of the innocent is placed 
upon the guilty. That when we stand before the righteous judge, that the righteous judge would look down upon the guilty and see the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And you say, but what about the guilty? If God is just, if God is fair, He must, He must by His very nature punish sin. He must. It just can't be swept under the table. That's not mercy. That's not justice. That's not grace. What happened to the rap sheet? It was placed on His only Son. And then God's justice through His wrath fell upon His only Son. Sin was punished. It was judged. It was justified. And therefore, God is able to pardon the guilty. The great hymn that we sing all the time before the throne of God says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of all the guilt within, I'm guilty. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty. You guilty? I'm guilty. Do I have a justification for all of my sins? I don't. Every sin that I did, I did willfully. I did in disobedience. I am guilty when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the guilt within, what do I do? I look in myself and say, why did I do that? Oh, my mommy didn't love me. My daddy didn't love me. No, that's not what I do. Up where do I look? And I see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. God is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. You understand when we talk about that we can't get past grace? When we can't get past the goodness and may I share something? It does not matter what you may have done. It does not matter what you may have done. You may say, Pastor, you don't know me. I've done some terrible things in my life. I tell you, I don't really care. And I'm going to tell you, neither does Jesus care if you come to him with repentance and faith. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm one of those people who are hard-headed. You have to ask my wife. She'll give you a whole litany of stories. And I was hard-headed in my heart toward God. God had to break my heart. 
to bring me to that place of repentance. To bring me to that place of what the Puritans call godly sorrow. To bring me to that place where I was at the end of myself. So that I called upon the name of the Lord. And I said, God, either you're going to save me or I'm going to die. And I meant that spiritually and I meant that physically. I knew that if God did not save me from my sin, I would die. And you know what God did? God pulled me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock to stay. He put a song in my heart today, a song of glory and hallelujah. And what God did for me, He does for you. And what God would do if you just come and you give your heart to Christ and you just repent of your sins and you turn and you put your complete confidence, your complete faith, your complete trust. Listen, I trust nothing else. If somebody burst in here today and put a gun to my head and said, you know, hey, I'm going to blow your brains out because you're a Christian. Where's my hope and trust? That 911's going to come? There is no 911. My hope and trust is that when he pulls that trigger, I'm going to be with the Lord. Because Christ paid for my sins. My heart is that we understand this in detail. That we understand the joy, the significance, the glory of sins forgiven. I don't even know where I am. I kind of got lost there, man. I want, I, want, I want you to look at verse 2. Verse 2, he continues his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the Apostle Paul. He pulls no punches, right? Hey, how you doing? Let me, okay, let's now let's talk about the weightier things. Now, I just want to outline for you a little bit of verses 3 through 14 because they're really, really, really critical. And it's critical for a good understanding, right? First of all, in verses 3 to 14, we see an amazing thing here. We see the working of the triune God. We see the working of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you look at verses 3 to 6, we see the work of God the Father, the works of God the Father. If you look at verses 7 through 12, we see the working of the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you look at verses 13 through 14, we see the glorious working of the Holy Spirit. Here we see the triunity of God as Paul unfolds this richness of doctrine. And in verses 3 through 14, there are 10, 10 specific blessings for the believer in Jesus Christ. And they begin in verse 3. God blessed the believer. Yeah, I'll go through all 10 of them. Number, all 10. Number 1. God blessed the believer in verse 3. In verse 4. God chooses the believer. In verse 5. God predestines the believer. In verse 6. God's grace is given to the believer. In verse 7. In Christ, the believer is redeemed. Verses 8 through 10, 
In Christ, the believer knows the mystery of God's will. In verses, verse 11, in Christ, the believer received an inheritance. Verse 12, in Christ, the believer has hope. Verse 13, the Holy Spirit seals the believer. And verse 14, the Holy Spirit assures the believers. Ten blessings right off the bat that he tells us are ours as believers in Jesus Christ. Now you might ask the question, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, so what's the big deal about this? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you must understand your position in Christ. You must. We don't understand that sufficiently. We need to understand our sufficiency is in Christ for all things. All things. We are more. Christ has made us more. Paul begins, now if you know that, by the way, it should change your view. It should change your knowledge of God. If you know that, and you know of these amazing blessings that have been bestowed upon the believer, how should you respond? You should respond with joy. Inexpressible. Joy full of glory. Joy that there is a hope. Joy that God did not call us to be pilgrims in this world and not equip us to be able to deal with life's trials and life's tribulations. We should have a hope that we have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. We should have a hope that we have the person of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We should have a hope as Psalm 34 says, that this poor man cried and the Lord heard. We have a God who hears. We have a God who has blessed us. We have a God who has poured out a multitude of blessing. Yes, we are not orphans in this world. Satan has no authority over us. Amen. Satan cannot do what he pleases. He is subjected to the will of the divine sovereign God that God allows us for our own good and our own growth. To endure, persevere, hold fast to Christ. For there is an eternal reward. You know, I don't don't know how the unsaved do it. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how the unsaved can face another day. I don't know when trial, tribulation, and sickness, and illness, and... Everything else comes into the unsaved life. How do you hold? If you don't believe in the one true God, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, how do you hold? What hope do you have? Maybe, maybe somebody up there will have mercy on me. That's not hope. That's wishful thinking. But the believer has hope. The believer has an immeasurable wealth of blessings. And so that knowing and understanding these truths, they can live their lives. Listen, this is the key. We can live our lives in a manner worthy of Christ. Worthy of Christ. 
We need to really come to grips with this. You know, the world screams to us. It screams to us with so many voices. So many voices. And, and it drowns out many times the Word of God. Many times we can get overwhelmed in our position in Christ to look more feeble than it looks strong. Which is why believers, through the Word of God, we have to remind ourselves of these truths of Scripture and to hold in these truths of Scripture. Well, I was intending to get into verse 3. I think I'm going to save that for next week. I just want to close with this comment. I started off telling you a true story about a person that I know who didn't know he was a millionaire until his wife passed away. And going from a disability check to a net worth of about $4 million overnight like that, he didn't know. And I said, that's true of many believers today. We don't understand what we have in Jesus Christ. And there are many in the church in similar positions. You're not aware of what is in Christ. What you have. And the key here is that those of us who have died to ourselves, who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised in newness of life, it's critical that we have this foundation laid before us. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, the Word of God says, Jesus said to his disciple, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the question is, have you ever died to yourself? That's the question. Have you taken up the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you denied yourself? Do you follow Jesus? Is Jesus just a historical figure that you believe walked the earth? You believe he was born of a virgin? You believe he lived a sinless life? You believe that he was betrayed into the hands of sinful men? You believe he was crucified? You believe he died? You believe he was raised from the dead? You believe he ascended into heaven? You love his moral? You love his ethics? You agree with the things he said? Well, if it's just that, that's insufficient. To be saved, to be born again, means to turn from your sin and turn to Christ and trust Christ only for your salvation. It goes from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. It's translated from data points into a regenerated life, a new life in Christ. Listen, I didn't make this up. Peter in Acts 2.38 says this, and Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I said at the very beginning, you may hear things and you may say, well, that's not me, that's not characteristic of me, that's, I, don't, I, I don't know, what's the story? There's time. There's time to get right with God. There's time to repent and turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus Christ and to be saved, to be born again. To be regenerated. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. There's time. What would hold you back? From calling out to God, calling out to Christ and say, Lord, save me unless I die. I did it. Many of you here have done it. Why delay? Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's bow in a 